The passage today comes from the book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of God. By now, if you uh, are one of our regulars, I hope you know this, these two verses. Um, you've heard them many times. And um, if you're new here today, this is a, we're in a series which actually concludes today. We spent, um, this is our eighth message on these two verses. It's two tremendously important verses that have literally changed history. And um, they're packed. It's a, it's a packed word. And uh, each, each uh, week we've been taking some piece of it and, 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 and letting it unfurl into its power and relevance in our lives. Last week, um, I preached on this portion where it says, um, it, that is the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, and this is the part I preached on, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the gospel saves everybody by faith through believing in the person that it proclaims, that is Jesus, the Messiah. And last week, I talked about this very, um, this odd portion that talks about to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And we had a, a message that is probably, many, perhaps you might you consider it um, unusual, because we actually talked about the literal meaning of this passage um, why the gospel needs to go specifically and especially to Jews, to Jews first. Um, and then it went to all the other Gentile believers around the world. Most of the Christians in the world, of course, now Gentiles. And it's Jews who seem to be especially resistant um, to believing in the gospel. So we talked about that last week. Um, today, I want to close my message by talking about the same portion to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But what I want to do is I want to give you another different layer of meaning of those words. So last week, I essentially taught you the historical, literal meaning of those words. There are Jews and then there are Greeks, you know, Greek ethnic folks. Or here, we're actually, we're not even just talking about Greek ethnic folks. We're talking about many, many different ethnicities that had come into the Greek kind of like philosophical. I mean, they spoke Greek back then. Um, just like today, many people speak English, but they're not American. Um, that's what it was like back then. They spoke Greek because it was the world's trade language, just as English is today. And um, so that's what it meant that they were Greek. They weren't literally Greek. Now today, um, I want to take it to a, 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 um, another level of meaning, which is that the Bible doesn't just talk about Jews and Greeks at the level of um, specific historical ethnicity, it talks about Jews and Greeks as a type. So Jews and Greeks aren't just one ethnicity in the world. In the Bible, the Bible looks at them as a certain kind of people. So this might sound a little strange. You don't have to be Jew, a Jew, that is, you know, ethnically Jewish, to be Jewish. You know what I'm saying? And just as uh, back then, people weren't, you know, by blood Greek, but they were Greek in their mentality, in their hearts, in their hearts and their outlooks. The, the cultural philosophical grid by which they looked at and they took in the world 
they were Greek. Well, today, guess what? That's still going on. There are Jews today, and they need the gospel. They have a certain way that they tend to miss salvation. They, don't, they miss out on the great things that God is offering. And there are Greeks today, and there are many, many people who are Greek today, and you're not Greek-Greek. You get what I'm saying here? And in fact, most of the people in this room, you're Greek. This is a very, very Greek city in the biblical way. And that's what I want to get at in today's message. And so let me just um, give you kind of in a nutshell before I begin to unpack it. This is a, a this is a rather simple way of looking at it, but still very, very helpful and insightful. The Jews essentially approached the world and they looked at the world through supernatural blessing. They wanted, they wanted something from God, right? And thus they looked at the world that the central way to get blessing and salvation in the world is through religion. That's the Jewish way. But as you know today, that's not the most popular way in our culture. What is the Greek way? The Greek way, let's put it, is the secular way. The Greeks were the first truly secular culture. They were the culture that began to disbelieve in religion. <laughs> they were the first people that began, they became, they were the first globalization culture. You understand, we call it globalization today, but they were the first world traders. They got in ships. They were the first ones to, you know, to engineer these great ships that can go very long distances. And you can't have world trade unless you can go a long ways. And they were the first people to meet very, very different exotic cultures, different races, different ethnicities, different religions and different gods, different cultures and moralities. And so they were the first to start looking at their religion in light of all these other people's religions. And you know what happened to them? This is what happened to them this may sound very familiar, is they began to lose faith in their own religions. That's what started happening to them. So when you were younger, did you ever grow up learning about the Greek pantheon? Zeus, Hera, Apollos, Apollo, and you know, you know you, the Athena, and you know, all these guys. And when I was young, I loved reading about this, and it was like the Greek mythology. Well, you know, it wasn't always mythology. You know what it was? That was the Greek theology, <laughs> not mythology. So the Greeks at one point believed, and you know, you know they, these guys over here, they worshiped Apollo. These guys over here worshiped Mars. Well, they, the Romans called them Mars, okay? Um, they called them Ares, the god of war. And these gods would, of course, these, this city would worship, they would bow down and have a temple to Zeus. And so this was their religion. It was a polytheistic religion. And this was their morality and their worldview. And then this again, then got interesting. Then they started going around encountering all these other people and they started thinking like, wait a second. These seem like kind of cool people and some of their practices seem actually better than our practices. Some of ours are, are of course better than them and you know, that's probably why we're better than them. <laughs> that's what they started thinking. But then over time, as they started to encounter other different religions and races, they began to realize, wait a second, maybe ours isn't the final one. And they began to lose their faith in their own religions and their own God and their own moralities. And then they went from looking at their religion as our religion to their myths. And so then you know what they started looking for? They started looking for wisdom. Wisdom. They're like, what we want is wisdom that's above all the other. You know, there's some wisdom that no matter what, 
ethnicity you are, no matter what culture you are, no matter what religious background your history came from, there's a wisdom that arises above all others. That's what they started looking for. And in terms of like, you guys have your right and wrongs and you guys have your right and wrongs. And, and I don't know about heaven and all this other stuff. They became very relativistic on those issues. But in terms of what really works to give human life power, to make my life work, to not just make my life work, but our people work, that's what they started to love and they called this wisdom. That's the Greek way. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Doesn't that sound, it's like, oh, you know, we're such advanced modern people. Everybody else believed in religion and today we're secular because we've kind of like outgrown religion. Sorry, the Greeks have been there more than 2,000 years before we ever got there. And so that was their approach toward how do you do human life? How do you solve problems of meaning and purpose and eternity and all these other things? And how do we get along with each other? Who do we have to say? These people are evil. We have to fight them. These people are good. They're on our side. And these are all the questions that we have today. Guess what? They had all those questions back then too. That was the Greek way, right? And it was so powerful that when another empire came along and defeated the Greeks, you know what they said? You know what? The Greeks, these guys are the best. We're just going to just whole hog, take their philosophical worldview and then impose it on ours. That's what the Romans did. And it was so powerful that the Roman Empire was the most powerful, long-lasting empire that's ever been on that planet up to that point in history. And still, if you go back in history... Is still one of the greatest, greatest civilizations and empires of all time. Why? Because they took in Greek wisdom. So now, 21st century Americans, or shall I call you 21st century Greeks? <laughs> Does this sound like an interesting message? I hope so. So part one, beyond religious power and secular wisdom. Beyond religious power and secular wisdom, or let me put it a little bit differently, beyond the Jewish way or the Greek way. The Jews need salvation by grace through the gospel. Guess what? So do the Greeks. And that hasn't changed in 2,000 years. That's still the same, and the gospel is just as powerful today as ever. Right? Part two, what do you desire most in and from life? You know, we've been um, eight weeks, you know, looking at different aspects of the gospel. This is the first, you know, big series of, you know, after the launch of Revived Church. And as we close out this series, I want to ask you this very, very pointed question. Because I really am asking you, what do you want your life to really, really be about? So that's the question I want to ask you. What do you desire most in and from life? And then I'm going to close um, by talking about something that will maybe surprise you. It's called the stupidity and weakness of God for you. Did you know that you need when God was stupid for you, when God is weak for you? Because that's where the power of the gospel is for salvation, right? Let's go part one. Um, so now I basically gave you an explanation of uh, the difference of Jews being Jews and Greeks being Greeks. And now you guys probably mostly know that you might be Chinese, but did you know you were Greek? <laughs> right? 
you know, you, you, you know, you might be a Filipino American, but did you know that you think more like a Greek? You know, there's like a, couple, like a Filipino part of you. And then maybe your parents, this is why we conflict with our parents or maybe our grandparents' generation. They have a kind of like more of a religious moral grid by the way they look at the world. They're more like Jews. Today's Jews are um, all the people that like, uh, so you don't have to be Jewish to be a Jew in this way of looking, understanding of the Bible, um, which is the Mormons are Jews. The Jehovah's Witness are like Jewish. Muslims, oh yeah, definitely Muslims. Right? Um, you can be an ascetic Buddhist or very, very sin- serious about your Hinduism. That's the Jewish way. It's the religion. And through religion, we're going to have something of the divine come into our life because we know how to do the religion. If I follow all the rules, if I do all the rituals, if I appease my gods, the Greeks knew how to do this too before they sort of lost their religion. Right? And, um, but this is a very, very Greek city, right? It's a secular city. It's a very, very Greek time. Our culture is moving in that direction. Um, this is a very, very deep problem. Some of you have heard these, ter- these buzzwords, postmodern. Um, I actually favor the philosophers that say we are in the late modern. Postmodern is late modern. And it's really when the secular ways are really trying to swallow up and destroy the old religious ways. But you're never going to get rid of the They're always going to be sitting there together. Just like in the Bible, they were there together. Same, it's, it's, it's always going to be like if the people think the secular, oh, religion will just go away. That, that's nonsense. <laughs> that's never going to happen, right? Now, some of you are going, Susan, that sounds all very, very clever. <laughs> it's not from me. I'm going to take you to a passage and I want to show you this is the Bible's reading of what it means to be Jewish and Greek. So let me take you to that passage and we'll project it now. Let me ask our brother to project it. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And uh, let me um, have you follow. This is a really unbelievably profound commentary on the world and on culture and morality and theology and religious worldview, okay? So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross, that's the gospel, by the way. <laughs> the word of the cross is the gospel. So it says, the, I, be, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Here it's saying the same thing. For the gospel, for the word of the cross, for the gospel is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. There we go. Doesn't that sound like Romans chapter 1, verse 16? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. So very similar. Um, So let me say that a little bit differently. For the gospel, so let's go to verse 1, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. So let me say a little bit differently. For the word of the cross, for the gospel is stupid to all those people who are dying. But to us who are being saved... It's God's power. <laughs> Verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Let me say a little bit of Who's so smart? Where are these people who are so darn smart? Where is the scribe? Today we don't use the term scribe. Back then, most people could not write. So if you are a scribe and you can write, you are among the most 
highest educated among the most brilliant people of your society. Today we would say, who are the PhDs? <laughs> who are our most brilliant scholars? That's what the question is. Who are the most brilliant scholars? Where are they? Hmm. Where is the debater of this age? Today, the, be, where are our smartest pundits and our greatest intellectuals? That's the way we would say it today. The Greeks of today, that's the way we'd say it. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now, let me just, this is just, I got to stop. And I, now, let me, just, this is such an incredible verse. And I, I, I want to challenge you here. This is, this is not my opinion. This is from the Bible. This is from God. Or at least we Christians, we believe this is from God. These are God's words. So here's how it says. In the wisdom, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Do you hear what it said? God, in his wisdom, decided that you cannot know God through wisdom. <laughs> That's what it just said. <laughs> so God in the way he actually made things, he chose that if you were going to try to get to God by being how smart you are, you're never going to get to God by how smart you are. How much more, how much more you know, how much more you discover. Now, let me just, um, just give you one point of application to this. In our very, very Greek city, a lot of secular people, they grew up you know, let's say your grandmother was a Buddhist and you grow up and then, you know, your, your friend is, is, a, is a Catholic and you got another friend who's kind of like a lapsed evangelical Christian or something like this. And then you got another friend who's like a lapsed Jew. That's kind of like our city, right? And then you're like, I don't really know what I believe. I'm an agnostic. Well, that's like pretty much most of our city. And then they go, well, how am I supposed to figure out what I believe about God and eternity and the, and the deep meaning of human life? Well, I don't really know. Well, that's fair. Well, you know, welcome to the Greek way. So then, what do they, what do so many people in our culture, especially the young people, the millennials in our culture, you know, what do they, what they assume? And it started, by the way, with X Gen. My generation started thinking this way. And now the millennials totally think this way. And now, you know, what, what do they call it? Gen Z? <laughs> Gen Z is starting to think this way. You know what they think? Well, I have to check out all the religions. <laughs> and then after I know more, in other words, after I have more wisdom, then I'll be able to make a choice, right? That's the wisdom of the world. That's the wisdom of the Greek way. It's not gonna work. <laughs> it's not gonna work. God, by his wisdom, said you cannot know him <laughs> through wisdom. <laughs> so if you know more and more stuff, because you know, knowing stuff, knowledge is wisdom. That's the pathway to wisdom. For Greeks, knowledge, you know, they had a word for knowledge. They call it, you know, it, later on that word you know, became translated in Latin, scientia. Scientia sounds like science because science comes from scientia, which goes back to wisdom and knowledge. See where all this stuff comes from? So if I know more stuff, then I will be able to make a discernment and then I can get to God, kind of, right? Wrong. Not according to the Bible. You can't get to God that way. So, the world did not know God through wisdom because it actually, God through his wisdom made it that way. It pleased God, well listen to this, this is, this is radical. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. 
Let me say it in 21st century way. God loves it. God actually enjoys it that the thing that sounds really, really stupid through the preachers is how people get saved. That's what the Bible just said. So there's an idiot like, like, like this idiot. <laughs> and he gets up here and he passionately sounds like an idiot. And God is happy that people believe what the idiot said and they get saved. <laughs> Not through wisdom, but through the stupid sounding thing that the preachers preach. Now let me get to this very, very pro- next profound verse, which gets at back to Romans 1.16, verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Let me say that again. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, doesn't matter whether you're a Greek, Jew or a Greek, whether you're on the religious side or whether you're on the secular wise side. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You know, we all need power. We all need a deeper wisdom. Not human wisdom, God's wisdom. And you know what God's wisdom is? It's Jesus. <laughs> For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger men. That's what we really, really need. We need God's stupidity. His foolishness. We need God being weak, not just being mighty. Now let me unpack this a little bit more and then we'll get to part two. What does this mean? Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. So here's basically what it means. Jews are people who had a revelation from God. They had all the God's laws. They had God's laws. They had the prophets. They had the priests. They had the temple where you go and connect to God and there are things to obey. And there's, uh, they have the true way of God. I mean, they're not just doing religion. They have the actual real religion. So all kinds of other people, they have something similar too. They have a Jewish way, but you know, they're not as good as the Jews because they don't actually have the real God. You know, they're worshiping Buddha or Krishna or somebody else, and that's not even the real God. But this is really interesting. This is a critique of all these people who are looking for a fulfillment of human life through a religious way. They're looking for signs. What do signs mean? A sign is this. And some of you, don't you guys do this too? Some of you guys do this too. You're, you're going through life, and then you want God to like, give you a sign. <laughs> Lord, um, which college should I go to? I need a sign. <laughs> oh, sh- should I marry her? But like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I really like her, you know, and I think she likes me. But like, it'd be nice, God, if you just showed up. You know, when I was in, when I was in college, I used, like, I used to have this conversation. It's like, it'd just be nice if like, you know, the, the, you know your name would light up on her forehead. <laughs> ding, ding, Susang, here's your wife, right? From God. You know, I don't want to, you know, just like a false, like from the devil or something, right? But some of you want that. Of course, some of you are like, that would be too terrifying. Forget it, right? You meet her and you're like, oh my goodness, the name just lit up. That's the sign of God. And then you would run away. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oh my goodness, you look at her and go, 
She's not as pretty as I thought she was going to be. <laughs> or something like this, right? And then you run away, right? Um, but, um, but you know, the people who really believe there's God and really believe, you know what I need? I need his power. I need his blessing. That's the Jewish way. But you know what is so typical of religious people? You don't believe it's by grace. You believe it's by religion. Because you look at yourself and you look at somebody else and go, this person's got like a good life. And this person's got a good marriage and they got into the really good college and they got the promotion. They got God's blessings. Sometimes they even got like a sign. <laughs> they were going on in life and then well, it's like God showed up. We, we had the testimony last week of, of the Jewish guy. I mean, like we, when he prayed, like Jesus, he like shared it. Like it's like Jesus walked into the room. I was like, if, I, I don't know if you would actually want that to happen. Some of you are like, I want that to happen. Some of you are like, heck no, I don't want that to happen. <laughs> okay, but like he actually got a sign. But this is actually a critique because most of us are saying, if I do X, Y, Z, and if I'm really, really good, if I do the religions right, then shouldn't God give me a sign? He'll give me some miracle. He'll give me supernatural power and blessing. It's really interesting. The Jewish way is not just Jewish. You know, I, I'm, I'm Korean-American, and in Korean culture, it's a really deep thing. Um, if you want supernatural sign and blessing, there's literally somebody you can go pay to go get this. <laughs> There's a professional religious holy man and in the Korean culture, they call him mudang. And in English, we probably um, would translate it to something like shaman. And you watch these movies every now and then someone goes, I, I'm like, I have a deep brokenness against my dad. I need a sign from my dead father, something supernatural. So then people go to like seances and mediums, right? This is the Jewish way. It's a, it sounds weird to say it that way. The religious way to get something of the supernatural that we deeply need. I want to say a little something to all you Greeks. Some of you are thinking like, I don't need that. You're just kidding yourself. You're kidding yourself. One of the days you get married, and your kid gets sick. Oh, you want there to be a God. <laughs> all of a sudden, you're going to get Jewish really fast. <laughs> And then you'd be like, what religions do I have to like pay out so that God will do this for me? So it's the Jewish way. You gotta get good enough. You gotta do the religion well enough. And then God will give me something. But you know what Paul says? It's not the way to salvation. The Jews think this is the way. It's not how they're gonna get saved. What's the Greek way? I already told you. The Greeks, they lost their religion because then they encountered all these other cultures. Then now they wanted wisdom. So today we don't, I don't know, do we call it wisdom? We call it, I don't know, we, we even have a good word for it. Science? Is, is that, it's like, we love science because science is, it's above culture, right? It's, it's based on evidence. But do you know what science is? It's just a 21st century wisdom discourse. That's really what it is. It's what it is. And so we think that if we can get, you know, um, theological questions about God, morality, the universe, the meaning of life into something that's scientific, in other words, like wisdom, then 
you know, then we'll really know how to like fix our society and our own hearts and we'll be able to help people who are depressed, fix poverty, stop going to war. Yeah, good luck with that. It's never gonna work. Because no human wisdom is enough. But you know, the Greeks love this. And it takes you pretty far. You can get a very great civilization this way, but you can never heal the deep problems of the human heart this way. It didn't work for the Greeks. And let me just say this also. The Greeks really are one of the greatest, greatest civilizations ever are, ever been on this earth. Is American civilization greater than the Greek civilization? I don't know about that. I don't think so. And so, it's something to think about. And this term philosophy... You know what it literally means? Philos means love. You know what Sophia is? Wisdom. <laughs> oh, we love the wisdom. We love the knowledge. And you know what this passage is saying? You're not going to get to God this way. You're not going to be healed as a people this way. You in your own life cannot have salvation. You can't have the power of salvation this way. God gave you power of salvation through the gospel. Not through wisdom. Not through signs. Okay? Let's go to part two. And I want to ask you this question. This question is, so some of you, you know, like some of you, you you come to church and you call yourself a Christian, but underneath your Christianity, you're kind of like a legalistic, more Jewish kind of person. (laughs) A lot of Christians are like that. And you're just trying very hard to get God to be nice to you. <laughs> and if you think you just try hard enough, God will hand you the signs and the, and the goodies. Is that what you really want in life? You want certain goodies, and God, the religion, will help you get there. <laughs> and some of you actually show up at church because those are the things that you want the most. Is that what you want the most? There's certain goodies in life And you're going to get it because you're going to get God to owe you if you do the religion well enough. That's the Jewish way. Is that what you're doing? And I want to ask you, that's not going to work. I mean, you can keep trying, but... (laughs) And some of you are like, come on, I don't really... I mean, come on, that religious stuff is irrelevant and that's why why they're not coming to church today because, you know, we're more and more a great culture, right? So that's not the way. But what they do is then they're going to go to the self-help section... (laughs) YouTube, do you know there are people that have the, you know, there are YouTube channels that are about like how to get rich and then retire without, you know, in your 30s. There's a, there's a guy, he's a Chinese dude. I I saw this channel. He's in his like mid to late 30s and that's what his, uh, his YouTube channel is all about. You know how many hits that guy gets? It's way more than our YouTube channel gets, (laughs) all right? So people are interested in that, right? I mean, that's the Greek way. Is that really what you want? If I can just get, I can retire in my 30s and my wife won't have left me. In this guy's case, he retired in his 30s and his wife did leave him. In fact, even a whole, like it's it's an incredible episode where he talks about my wife left me and this is what it's like. And it's really terrible. Whoa. And man, it got a lot of views. (laughs) Now I want to take you to a passage in the Bible that I think this is, kind of takes you to the central offering of the gospel. 
where the gospel gives you a power that's more than getting something. You're like, there's something, some good thing I got to get out of life. Retirement into my mid-30s, a really good marriage. My kids just turn out just really great. I mean, those are all good things. But is that the one, is that like the biggest, highest thing in your life? So this shows up in the Bible in multiple different ways. And so I'll just give you one place. So this is a Psalm 142. You share that up there? Here we go. So this is in the Bible, guys, okay? The Bible teaches you actually how to pray. In fact, the Bible teaches you what's in your, in your own mind. I bet you some of you have literally said these things. Not exactly these words, but basically the same feeling. Verse one, with my voice, I cry out to the Lord. See the capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh. I cry out to Yahweh. With my voice, I plead for mercy to Yahweh. I mean, you know his name. Let's say it the Christian way. With my voice, I plead for mercy to Jesus. Jesus, when he comes, when Yahweh comes to be with us, he got the name Jesus. <laughs> I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. Is that how you pray? Some of you have a lot of troubles. That's, that's like when you pray. <laughs> when everything's going good, no prayers. Bottom drops on your life, oh, there's a lot of prayers. And some of you are bold enough to complain. Verse three, when my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Do you ever feel that way? If you guys are younger, you might not have felt, when I was 18, I was like, who's, who's, who's got a trap for me? Wait till you get to about 25, you will feel like there are traps for you from other people. By the time you're 35 and 45, you're like, gosh, there are people that have traps for you. Some people are, they're like, they themselves are the trap. <laughs> it's like, get this person out of my life. <laughs> you will know this feeling. It's a very, very true words. Verse four, look to the right and see there's none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. You ever feel that way? You ever say that? No one's there for me. I'm all on my own. See, it's in the Bible. You think God doesn't know what's in your heart, what's in your mind? There it is. He knows. But here is what the Bible's saying, how you should think. Verse five, I cry to you, O Yahweh. I cry to you, Jesus. I say, you are my refuge. You guys understand what a refuge is? When you're unsafe and the world is crashing down, you have to have a refuge, a really safe place. It's a person. A person is the refuge. His name is Yahweh, or we know him as Jesus. And here's the part that I want you to, to really wrestle with. My portion, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. So what does that mean? So this is what, it, it's a portion, my portion. This is a really big idea in, in the Old Testament. It's the idea that life is like a feast, like a banquet. 
And um, I actually said this recently, at, you, know, at, uh, you know, one of our members, their, their child at her first birthday, and I talked about this portion. And um, so if life is a banquet, um, you know, you guys, you guys ever do this? You know, you go to the, the buffet. Think of it as life as a buffet. <laughs> and when you go to the buffet, you know, my wife, she goes right to the beef. <laughs> okay? But then, then she eats some, like, broccoli. I would never go to the broccoli. <laughs> okay? Some of you, you know, if life is a buffet, you'll go to perfect family. I, uh, that's my portion. Some of you would be like, if I can just have a really fantastic career, that will be my portion. That's the portion. You choose that as your portion. You know, you just have different things. Long health. Good health for all, all, everybody I know. I'll get to be with them and we're all going to enjoy good health and we're going to live a long old age. That would be the portion I'd pick. But you know what this pastor is saying? You, Jesus, you're my portion. <laughs> That's what it's saying. Let me ask you this question. Do you want that? Not something from Jesus, but Jesus. <laughs> The gospel does not merely offer to you forgiveness because that's something from Jesus. You, you and I need forgiveness. You need more than forgiveness? You need him. <laughs> There's Jesus. Oh, heaven. I want heaven because I don't want to go to you know, the other place. But you know, heaven wouldn't be a great place if Jesus isn't there. <laughs> You know what makes heaven heaven? Jesus. <laughs> because there, everybody says, Jesus, you're my portion. Not money, not success, not good looks, not perfect kids, not great marriage, not great career. Jesus, you're my portion. Um, let me take you to... Um, this thing, I, I, I got this yesterday. This is like, a, like I just felt like this is, I, I chose this. I don't know how many of you do our, our quiet time material. So hopefully this, maybe this will intensify, incentivize some of you to do our devotional material. So every Saturday I've been, in the last couple of weeks, I've been choosing some other, uh, you know, a good reading that meditates on the Bible. It actually was very relevant to this. So this, here we go. This is from the November 16th devotion by a very, very famous pastor named uh, Charles Spurgeon. And so he, he wrote this uh, devotion. It's called Morning by Morning. And um, he meditated on this. So let's, let's, let's put it up there. He meditated on Lamentations 3.24. Good. Oh, here we go. And uh, this is what it says. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. And here's what he said. It is not the Lord is partly my portion, nor the Lord is in my portion, but he himself makes up the sum total of my soul's inheritance. When I'm actually going to, my soul's going to fill my soul. Within the circumference of that circle, that is he himself, lies all that we possess or desire. The Lord is my portion. Not his grace merely, nor his love, nor his covenant, but Yahweh himself. He has chosen us for his portion, 
and we have chosen him for ours. He goes on. The Lord is our all-sufficient portion. God fills himself, and if God is all-sufficient in himself, he must be all-sufficient for us. You know what he's saying? You know, there was a time when there was no creation, and there was just God. So he's like saying, man, I'm kind of bored. There's no video games to play. Is that what you're thinking? Gosh, I'm kind of bored. So, you know, I need to go, you know, get some comfort food. There's no hot. I'm going to go down to the local store and get Haagen-Dazs ice cream because I'm feeling a little empty inside myself. That's kind of, that's what I say. God never said that. He was all sufficient in himself. And so if we have him, wouldn't we be filled? That's what he's saying. He goes on. When he, that is the, the, uh, a certain man, oh, it goes, it goes, it is not easy to satisfy man's desires. Sorry, ladies, this is 1850s, okay? <laughs> satisfy a person's desires. When he imagines that he is satisfied, soon afterwards, he wakes to the perception that there's still something more beyond him. <laughs> wait, I'm satisfied, then tomorrow, wait, what's next? And immediately, I love the way he puts this. <laughs> this is what he puts. And immediately, the horse leech in his heart. Did you know that you have a horse leech in your heart? That's the way Charles Spurgeon put it. And immediately, the horse leech in his heart cries, more. When he more. So inside your heart, there's this voice. Well, what's next? What's more? And you guys know what a leech is? And you guys ever seen a leech on a horse? It's a big, bad leech. And according to Charles Spurgeon, we all got one. But all that we can wish for is to be found in our divine portion so that we ask, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Can you get to a place in your life? Maybe you, can't, you don't even desire. Gosh, I, that's, that's a crazy message what you're saying because I don't even know how to desire Jesus above all things. Maybe today your prayer could be, Lord, help me desire to desire you to be my portion. That'd be an important piece of repentance unto faith. Now I want to close this message by giving you a story and then I want to talk about the stupidity and weakness of God. All right? I'm going to tell you the story. Um, so, if you've been in this church a while, you know that, um, that uh, one of our heroes, one of my heroes, is a woman named Beth Kidd. I named our daughter after her. Our youngest daughter is named after this incredible saint of a woman named Beth Kidd. And she started this ministry in Boston. She's still alive. She's, just, she's, a, she's an elderly lady now. And um, called Place of Promise. And Place of Promise is for multiply injured persons. And that basically means... You did drugs, and you have AIDS, and you came out of prison, and you were probably abused when you were young, multiply injured. And she gets on the gospel, and they transform. So this past spring, so this is a new story, okay, and it's not actually about Beth. This past spring, um, our family took a trip to Boston because we were checking out some colleges, and you know what we did? We visited Beth. <laughs> we went to Place of Promise. And so we, you know, I, I have this picture, maybe I should have shown it to you, where Elizabeth is standing next to Beth. I'll, I'll shoot that out this week, okay? And uh, when I took that picture, I almost started crying. 
And so here, here's the story. She invited us to stay after catching up with her. She said, we're going to have like a Bible study this afternoon. And if you want, you can stick around for dinner. We couldn't stick around for dinner but because um, we had a dinner appointment. But we stuck around for the Bible study during the, all the people at Place of Promise. So we stuck around. And she said, we have someone special today. <laughs> she introduced us. <laughs> so this room is uh, you know, it's like kind of like uh, their dining room. And there's all these chairs. And there's probably like about maybe 17 people around here. These are the regulars. Some are living there and some live outside in some other group home and they come back. Most of the people who are there are um, wrestling with some kind of drug addiction. And some of them probably have AIDS or some other disease. Maybe HIV or, or some other disease they got. There's some needle infestation. So we're sitting in this room and she introduced us and she goes, well, instead of leading a Bible study, she asked um, everybody to introduce themselves. And we were around the room. And they said their name and they said a little something of their story. And I want to tell you about one man. One, so of all the people in that room, of these, one person really stood out to me. He was an older gentleman. He, he's Caucasian. Most of the people in the room were white. Some were, there were three people who were black. Some were Hispanic. I think like maybe one other person was Asian. Most of the people at Place of Promise, you could tell, at least I could tell, they were poor. They came from some kind of working class background or even under, you know, lower than working class background. Except for this one guy. Got this room, you know, got around this one person. He, um, just the way he talked, I knew he was educated. <laughs> right away. I was like, and this guy's not kind of educated. This guy's at least got to have a master's degree. And I could tell he was a very world-wise man. He had been around. And he talked with education. And he didn't dress fancy, but he dressed just a little bit nicer than everybody else was dressed. And I could tell he had decided to dress down, but he had somehow wrecked his life, and there he was at Place of Promise. And you know when he got, it got to his turn? This is what he, he said something like this, and this was just really impressed me. He says, this is, I love being here. This is in a poor neighborhood, in a room full of a bunch of poor people, and somehow he had wrecked his life most of the people were coming out of drug addiction. And he says, here, I have met God. And I have his love. And there's no other place I want to be right now than to be sharing that love and to have Jesus with you. That's what he said. Something like that. And I remember sitting there going like, this man has found out what life is about. You could say, all these other people, they're poor, so they were weak, so they need a savior, right? But this guy, I knew, he'd been around. He's tasted success. He's also been at the bottom. And he's found out that he needed a power of God for salvation from the gospel. And this, he was saying, Jesus, my portion. That's what he was saying. Now I want to close by taking you back to those, these verses, verse 22 and 25 from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So here's how it says. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach the Messiah. He's crucified. 
And here's how that passage ends. For the foolishness of God, the stupidity of God, for when God is being so stupid, that's wiser than men. And the weakness of God, when he made himself ever so weak, naked, humiliated, tortured, stripped down on the cross, that's stronger than anything human beings have ever dished out. Do you want power for life? You want to know how to get through life? That when you are at the bottom and you've wrecked it, or life has kicked you down, you've wrecked it or life has kicked you down, you go around looking for some, I need a sign, give me a sign. Do you start doing that? Or you say, Jesus, you're my portion. <laughs> You'll be my portion. Or are you the person like, hey, everything's clicking for me. I got my career. I got into the school I wanted. I met this really you know, hot babe and she actually likes me. Oh man, we're gonna like, we're falling in love and everything's gonna be great. And then you're thinking, hey, I, I was smart. I put it all my life together and you know what? Just, and then just wait till the circumstances change and then it all drops out on you. And then what? <laughs> or can you say, like that man, like that remarkable man, place of promise, Jesus my portion. Here's how you can get there. And I'm gonna close this way. Let me read this and I'll close. In the crucifixion, the stupidity of God decided to choose you even though you were unworthy. Indeed, you deserved damnation. You should have been rejected and hated, and you were filthy and wretched, and you were ugly. Maybe pretty on the outside, but not so much on the inside. But he decided not to just give you something, that's Jesus, not even something great like forgiveness or his favor or his blessing or even something great like his name or his privileges. In and through the cross, what we saw was that God was so stupid enough to give you himself. He gave himself to be with you forever so that he could be your portion forever the foolishness of God. And in the weakness of God in the cross, he showed that he would make himself really, really low. He would make himself wretched and vulnerable and dying and ugly and rejected and humiliated so that he would say, I'm with you. I'm totally for you. When you're weak, I'm with you. The weakness of God means that when you are totally weak and feeling alone, see, you know, I go look to the left and nobody's there. And I got to just deal with this thing on my own. And rejected and maybe even hopeless, you don't have to start looking for wisdom or a sign. You know who you look for? You look for your portion, Jesus. He's there in the darkness with you. He's the God who went into the darkness to be weak with you the weakness of God. He chooses to be weak for you. And he says he will never leave you.
This is what the gospel offers you. He will take on your weakness, your shame, your guilt, all your dying. He comes in his stupidity and his weakness to die for you, to die with you. And when he dies, your dying will be his dying. And since your dying is his dying, his dying will be your dying. And when he dies, he can't stay dead because he will defeat the death with his life. And when you die with him, his life will be your life. That's the promise of the gospel. He will conquer your death and your weakness so that when you are feeling weak and worthless, his weakness will swallow up all your weakness and you could live with him. This is eternal life that conquers all the death and dying. This is how the gospel of Jesus has real power. Power. Not just some idea, not just religion, not just morality, not just some nice doctrine, but power. This is the power for salvation. Revived church, don't be ashamed of it. Have boldness. Say to Jesus, I want you to be my portion. Please be my portion. You will have this power. Not just today, not just tomorrow, forever. No matter what hits you in life. Let's pray. I often think, Lord Jesus, I may be the preacher. I believe these words, but then tomorrow I choose ice cream. (laughs) I choose my hope that I'll get rich one day. I choose porn or something gross because, oh, that'll give me some comfort when I think I'm alone. I choose my fantasies. I choose some And then I I even pray, Lord, will you give me retirement? Will you give me this or this or that? And I just think if I would just be better at this or if I just have a little, I flip and flop between the Jewish way looking for signs and the Greek way looking for smartness and for wisdom. And I so regularly fail to say, Jesus, will you be my portion? If you're here today and you are like me, I'm the preacher and I'm letting you know that I have often chosen something else to be my portion and not Jesus. Today, would you say to Jesus, would you be my portion? Lord Jesus, thank you that when we regularly choose something else, it's crazy. You forgive us again. And again, and you say, I'll wait till it fails. And you finally know that I alone can be your portion. Thank you for the chance to meet that one incredible brother. 
he said with a stillness and a confidence and a great conviction, I knew that he had gone to a deep and profound place in life because you were his portion. And help us to go there. Whether we call you our Lord or we have never called you our Lord. Receive us and help us, Lord. Would you accept us? And today we ask you for the first time, maybe the first time, would you be my portion and come into our life and be our life. In Jesus' name.